Grief can also be relief. It can also be realizing that you've had to grow in certain ways since the loss. And, and then the trick is to be okay with that growth. The bad stuff's already baked in the cake. The bad stuff's happened. But allowing for growth, giving yourself permission to acknowledge that growth and not just kind of catch yourself grieving badly, but catch yourself growing. and correspondence about spiritual de- and reconstruction. Season 3, Episode 11, Reprise. Hey everyone, it's Kevin. Good to be back from the break. This episode represents a beginning to the final act of Season 3. A last run of episodes which are going to present some conversations in ways we've never really presented them before. And you'll hear more about that in the coming weeks, but for now, this is our reprise. It's going to act as a sort of prelude to this whole batch of episodes, and it's going to do that by reminding us what has been taking place throughout the airing of Grief's time as a podcast, from the very beginning to where we find ourselves now. One thing that sticks out to me about the airing of Grief format so far is that we've always been pretty dedicated to the people we talk to remaining anonymous. That's why the audio disappears whenever we say someone's name, And when we began the podcast, that was hugely important to a lot of the people scheduling calls with Derek. Some of them had jobs on the line or people they didn't want to know about their deconstruction. There was more of a general fear and anxiety for some of the people in being known or implicated. And so it was part of the agreement in having a conversation with the podcast that we would never air names. With season two, we kept to that. And we have in season three as well, Apart from one guest who named herself in a way that was just too powerful within the context of her story to not include, but all this time later, I often think about the anonymous thing and how, at this point, it has a lot less to do with what it meant in season one. It's become more stylistic, if anything. Maybe it adds a bit of mystery, or at best helps us to see ourselves in each other's stories because, you never know, you could be hearing from anyone. And we like that. We like the general quality of anonymity. It keeps things about the story and the conversation. The podsphere being the way it is with people making the rounds, our ethic has always been to celebrate and amplify regular people. We think regular people are pretty great, actually. But the reason I bring all of that up is that the conversation we're airing this week is with someone I'm going to name, And I think you can expect that to be a more common occurrence in the future when we feel like it needs to be changed up. In the submissions at our website, I found one from a Dr. Justin Yap. He's a clinical psychologist and associate professor of psychiatry at the University of North Carolina. 
He helped to found the Widowed Parent Program there, and he co-authored the book, The Group, Seven Widowed Fathers Reimagine Life. Hearing that now, you might wonder how all this applies to what we're doing here, but when he begins speaking about grief over dashed expectations or the sting of having to reimagine a new life, it quickly becomes apparent just how much the grief space he occupies overlaps with this one. Trauma and process and reconstruction, these are broadly experienced realities in life. And there are many parallels to be found between the space he occupies clinically and the space we've found ourselves holding here. One thing we're learning in conversations like the one you're about to hear, these spaces for reconstruction are as interconnected as the spaces for grief. The huge diversity of voices we've been hearing from still have so much in common as people speak to what they lose and what they find, to what ends up broken and what ends up getting built. Well, thanks so much for doing this. I've been looking forward to it. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time. And you, uh, you, you sit in a very particular arena within a particular arena uh, or field <laughs> yeah you're right about that it's kind of a, a carve out niche of a, of a carve out to begin with mm-hmm. so i work i'm a psychologist at a cancer hospital and we um it so happened that about 10 years ago now we had several young women who were all mothers um, who sadly um, who had advanced cancer and sadly died around the same time. And one of my colleagues here at the hospital, uh, Dr. Don Rosenstein, and I got to talking after this had happened and we're just thinking about their husbands and uh, what they must be going through. And, and we looked to refer them to local support groups for widowed dads um, at the time, naively thinking that such thing existed. And then we looked around and found out there was nothing for widowed fathers or widowed moms in our area of North Carolina. But really, this population seemed to have been almost completely overlooked um, nationwide and even worldwide. And that struck us immediately as a as a, a real oversight in the in the grief community. So we decided to throw our hats in the ring and uh, contact a few of the fathers whose wives had died, and were able to get together four other men in the community and. We started a support group for widowed fathers, and that's really how we got going in this in this area. And um, the initial group was uh, our plan was for uh, six sessions. Um, that's kind of what we had mapped out. And by the end of the first evening, based on some of the feedback from the guys in the group, we decided to scrap that plan and make it open ended. Actually, one of the guys said, "You know, hey, if this support group works, why would you?" just limit it to six and we didn't have a good answer. So we said, well, let's just keep it open. And that first group of men ended up meeting together for just about four years, mm. a group of seven guys who obviously had, uh, didn't know each other beforehand. And, and in some ways had very little in common other than being young widows and having children at home and feeling like the weight of the world was on their shoulders at a time when they didn't even feel like getting out of bed. So really, it was from that group that got us started um, and building a program at large to where now we have a resource website with lots of videos and some other stuff 
we started doing some research based, you know, we're here at the university. So we started doing some research and just finished um, our second study, which we had a little over a thousand parents complete surveys. Wow. So that we could, so that we can figure out how to develop programs to, um, to, to meet those needs. And then the seven guys in the group were the basis for the book that we wrote. And it's really a book about their, their story as seven men who came together over nearly four years. And in the book, we weave in contemporary thoughts on grief, adaptation, um, post-traumatic growth, and, and how to try and piece your life back together and move forward. And, uh, and that was, you know, started almost 10 years ago. And we continue to run uh, support groups for moms and dads and do a lot of education in our area and a little bit nationally and uh, and the research in the book. So we're really trying to raise some awareness and raise the level of awareness about what these parents go through. Mm. So sitting with that grief as a way of life, even not sharing, I guess, that story yourself, but, you know, when you're around and surrounded by so much of it from others, do you find it gets to you? Does it overwhelm? That's a good question. Um, I'm a psychologist here at a cancer hospital, so I'm you know most of my my day job in a sense is to work with people who who often face um, anticipatory grief, um, depending on the on the diagnosis and the prognosis. But I'd kind of gotten a, a little bit accustomed to to that just from my own emotional standpoint. But the first night that we had that first group of fathers, and it was one story after another of incredible heartbreak and feeling you know rudderless and lost at sea and hearing those stories and and how they felt consumed with their own grief or grieving on behalf of their children were trying to help their children grieve somehow you know make the trains run at home and then you know figure out how to be a sole parent it, it it didn't take long for me to start imagining putting myself in, in their shoes and trying to imagine what that would be like. And, mm-hmm. and that's, you know, we've been doing it for 10 years. And so in, in some ways, I think that you get a little bit used to it. But but there are plenty of nights when I come home from a support group and I chat with my wife and I, I find myself kind of looking at her differently and appreciating what we have, but also being more aware than I would be otherwise of, of how fragile that can be. Mm. Yeah, I think that's actually exactly what I was wondering was just that exposure constantly to the fragility of everything. Yeah, and you know, it, this whole experience has kind of taught me that we all kind of have an imagined future of how we think things are going to unfold and how we kind of expect whether you're going to get married, grow old, you know, send your kids off to school, all that kind of stuff. However, you, whether you kind of put a lot of thought into it or whether it's just kind of a baseline imagined future. And for these men and women who we work with, you know, they, they held the same imagined futures and those were shattered. And, uh, you know, it, it really underscores that, you know, things that we may just kind of assume and think you're going to grow old with your spouse. Um, that's not, that's not a given. And to, watch these moms and dads over time really have to find the courage to reimagine a new life. Mm. And that takes some guts because you've already been burned once and you've already had this life that you imagined and envisioned for your family. And that was 
that was taken from you and now to have to kind of do that again because you have to look forward and you have to kind of envision how how you want it to work out but you're doing that now with the you know lived experience of knowing that that imagined future is no more secure than the one that has already been taken from you it's a real exercise in you know trust or faith or just kind of having to put yourself out there and be hopeful again and that's um after you've been burned so deeply that's not an easy thing to do and were you coming at some of this from a particular faith background no, not, not not particularly. And for our group, it's not a faith-driven model. That being said, of course, faith comes up, and mm-hmm. um, you know that's a that's a big part of, as you guys obviously know, it's a big part of people's experience. And that topic, like any other topic, is is not off limits when we get together with these with these parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I wouldn't say it's a it's a huge topic, but it, it certainly comes up. And we've had some men. Um, and women confide in how, you know, either their faith has been shaken or sometimes we hear about faith being strengthened. And sometimes those two things are in the same person at different times. To some degree, all of the stories we've featured have been along those lines of the loss of faith in the sense of a loss of what you mentioned as an expectation of what what is going on and what is coming in the future. Right. And without that sort of orienting story for a lot of people, they find hope goes away. And then, of course, we have to then learn to build hope in new ways. And that's a frustrating process. And it can feel really arbitrary when you're handed something that you you know, you just believed and it seemed like, well, this is of course the way I always envisioned it should go. And, and so there's grief associated with, well, now I have to intentionally build something. Right. Uh, let's talk about adaptation a little bit as far as what you've learned about it through the process of grief and other people's grief. Yeah. I think what we've learned is that as humans, we, we adapt to things all the time, big and small. And most of those adaptations are so minor they barely even register in our conscious right like i think of a a, a very silly example but say you're going to your work and and one of the roads is closed and you have to figure out a different route to get to work something that would barely even register on the adaptation scale sure but still it's adapt and so it's it's adaptation so humans are built to and are wired to adapt now that is obviously a, a far, far, far cry from having to adapt to the loss of a loved one who's died. But at a core level, I think the same truth is there, is that humans are meant to adapt. And if humans could not adapt to the loss of loved ones, we never would have survived as a species for all these millennia. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, people are hardwired to do it. I think the one reason amongst many why it's so hard is... We just I'm struck by how often we meet with folks who who have expectations of how they, you know, quote, should grieve or how they should adapt or how they should be doing, and then they measure their coping and their adaptation against this 
you know, I would say kind of false narrative or false expectation. And a lot of times it doesn't come up good because how we think we should grieve or should adapt is, I think, often not accurate. And and so I meet people all the time who I, my sense is that they're doing, they're grieving and adapting at their own pace and grieving and adapting in a way that feels to me to be normal, but they don't think so because they maybe have read a book or they've had a friend tell them something about how they should be doing, or it's been X amount of months and you should be dating and and maybe they don't feel like it. So then they think, well, that must mean I'm not adapting well. And so all these kind of judgments against how you quote should be doing, I think can really serves to to limit and to hinder people's sense of self and sense of of coping and really how they are adapting. And so I, it's a little bit different than what you asked, but I, I think that having fair, reasonable expectations of how one should do in the aftermath of a life-altering change or, or the or the loss of a loved one really, really has a lot to do with this. And um, so I find that just in that sense, what I do that I think is helpful for people is really try and help them assess their own self-biases and really, really kind of get at what is being fair to yourself, which is usually the same standard you would hold a friend to. But we, we, we tend to be much harder on ourselves than right. we are other people. Right. Because um, we're, we're moving along, having expectations, and then those expectations are shattered into this period of grief. And then we have expectations for how we're supposed to deal with that. coming to grips with that in some respect of learning that you do have the the capacity or the power to adapt is that where the growth comes in is yeah I, I think part of it is realizing one realizing that like we said that you are hardwired as a human being you are hardwired to adapt to change and this is a big change so it takes longer to adapt and it's going to be harder to adapt but the natural flow of this is toward adapting to major life changes. So I think that's kind of one. And then as far as the growth, I think part of that is giving yourself permission to grow. And that was a big thing that we hear a lot in the group is that people, you know, there's this expectation that you maybe have to be all doom and gloom or that grieving only means being sad and crying and ruminating and missing the person that, that has died. And that And that's obviously a huge component of grief, but grief can also be relief. It can also be realizing that you've had to grow in certain ways since the loss. And and then the trick is to be okay with that growth. You know, the, the, the bad stuff's already baked in the cake. The bad stuff's happened. But allowing for growth, giving yourself permission to acknowledge that growth and not just kind of catch yourself grieving badly, but catch yourself growing. Mm. There's, um, you know, there's some studies on this in the world of post-traumatic growth, which is a relatively new or newly understood phenomenon. But, but it's, you know, it's certainly been researched enough and and has been shown to be a, a real phenomenon that. You know, we're so used to looking at, at least in my world as a psychologist, we're so used to looking at post-traumatic stress disorder 
and how following trauma were damaged goods in some way. And, and that can be true, of course, but what can also be true is that following the trauma, we grow, and that's what post-traumatic growth is all about. Mm-hmm. And I think a really interesting aspect of that is that some of the research, not that, that I've done, but some of the research that's out there has shown that PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, and post-traumatic growth are not two ends of the same continuum. It's not one or the other. It's two different continuums that people can be high or low on either or both. So, you know, you can have, you know, post-traumatic stress symptoms and you can be traumatized or deeply grieving following the loss and still have high post-traumatic growth. So those aren't mutually exclusive and they're not one or the other. And so I think that kind of goes along with what you were saying, that it's important to acknowledge that you can grieve in all the ways that people are familiar with and grow at the same time. It's not, it's not a one or the other type scenario. I think it's taught me, I'll talk about the support groups that we run and what those have taught me, which I I suppose I already knew, but it's really been shown to me is how meeting with and connecting with others who have experienced a similar loss and are experiencing similar pain, how just how truly beneficial that is for one's healing. And, you know, we see that every meeting where you know, a person, one father receives support from the other father and that father supports others. And it doesn't mean support as in saying, you know, giving advice necessarily or giving them an attaboy, but sometimes it's just sitting with that and it's not coming up with a solution or an answer, but just sitting in that same space and really kind of feeling like you're being heard and that you're not alone. Because I think for a lot of people, grief is a very isolating and lonely experience. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, it has to be because the person you lost and the relationship you lost, the relationship you lost is is just yours. And mm-hmm. so in some ways, I think that is a very personal experience. But grief does not have to be isolating. And, you know, we have account after account, story after story of Men and women are groups who say that their healing has been facilitated by meeting with and sitting with other people who have you know, gone through similar experiences. And that's in some ways not some revelation on, on my part by any means. But, you know, for anyone out there who's who's grieving there, there are others out there who are grieving as well. And, you know, you can go on social media and Facebook, and it looks like everyone in the world is having the best time of their lives. And it can make you feel really like you're just the only one kind of in the dark corner. But mm-hmm. but there are, there are others out there too. And if you can find a way to connect with those people, either through virtual support group, an in-person support group, or just connecting with one other person who's going through a similar experience. And the goal doesn't have to be necessarily anything other than just to sit and talk and feel connected. You know, humans are social creatures and we need to feel connected to things. 
and especially when we're grieving, when we feel we can feel isolated and disconnected from a lot of things that matter to us. Mm, that's good. The advice that goes out saying, we'll trust the process, but the feeling a lot of people in grief have that there is no process, that they don't feel they're <laughs> in any any moment of adaptation or any moment of growth or any moment of even being specifically angry or or any of those things where it's just sort of that free fall, so that sort of like nihilistic part of grief. Do yeah. you have any do you have any advice when you encounter that? Yeah, first of all I would say that's normal. <laughs> you know, I think um there's something about just knowing that how you feel is is normal and that way you can just feel bad. You don't have to feel bad about feeling bad. But what 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 I would say, uh, just as my role as a psychologist, I w- if I had a few minutes, I would tell them and and let them know about. Have you ever heard of the dual process model of coping with bereavement? No. It's a, a a way of of looking at and understanding how we go through uh, the grieving process that is much different than the say five stages of grief or that there's certain tasks that you have to perform. It's created about 20 years ago by a pair of psychologists in, in the Netherlands, um, Margaret Strobe and Hank Schute. And what it holds is that there are two types of stressors that people encounter when following a loss and when they're in the midst of bereavement. And one of those is loss-oriented stressors. And that has to do with what it sounds like, what you've lost and kind of looking back. The other kind is restoration-oriented stressors, and what that is are new challenges you have to deal with because of that loss. And so what this model holds is that people oscillate and go between these two kinds of stressors, looking back and then looking forward, and both can be challenging. How it works is that when you are newer in your grief, a lot of that is spent looking back at what was lost, and that's normal. And sometimes you can oscillate within the same minute, right? You could be thinking about your wife that died, and then your cut, then your kid comes up and says, "Daddy, I need breakfast, so you have to fix breakfast." And that's moving forward. And then you hear a song on the radio that reminds you of your wife, and then you're back thinking about what was lost, and you kind of go back and forth, and that can feel like a whipsaw, right? It can feel disorienting. It can feel like you're not moving forward because you keep thinking back, but that's normal. That's how this is supposed to go. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, looking back on what was lost and trying to move forward with what comes next. But over time, what happens for most people is that oscillation, the back and forth tends to calm down and you spend a little bit less time looking back and a little bit more time moving forward. But it doesn't go away. That same song on the radio could have you looking back and have you thinking about what you lost five years, 10 years, 30 years down the road. But that that's not not okay. That's okay because you're still, and you're always in this kind of oscillation between looking back and moving forward. Just over time, the looking back tends to kind of quiet down. But it's not a matter of moving past that. It's not a matter of, of moving on from. It's not a matter of putting that completely behind you. And anytime you feel sad about your loss, that that means you're, you're backsliding. That's just the natural rhythm of how this goes. And 
being okay with that rhythm, or at least acknowledging that that rhythm exists and that you're not backsliding and that you're not kind of falling off the wagon per se if if you have a bad hour or a bad day or a bad few days. That doesn't mean that you're crashing again. That's just the rhythm. And at the beginning of the cycle, when you feel disoriented and you don't know which way's up, that's part of that rhythm because you're going back and forth almost constantly. And so it feels very dizzying and disorienting. So this model, as we understand it, really can help at least um, give some structure to this in a way that doesn't sound like there's five simple stages and then you're done or that there's certain tasks you have to accomplish and then you're good. In some ways, that kind of grief is forever if your loss was profound enough. You know, these guys and these moms that we work with are never going to say that they're over their loss. Mm -hmm. And they don't have to be. Mm -hmm. that's, not, that's not a task of grieving. Another important expectation to examine is that expectation that you get, have to be over it at some point. Uh, yeah, that's. I, I think that's such a um, that can be such a, a damaging belief to hold because I think for a lot of people, when they're grieving their loss, the thought of being over it and moving on is not what they want to do. They want to feel connected to that person still, and I think getting to a point where you can still feel connected to the person you lost and at the same time move forward with your life. I, I think that's kind of the sweet spot that is where I think a lot of people want to get to and to realize that those things can both exist at the same time. You can still miss and grieve and feel connected to the person you lost and date again and, and move forward, you know, moving on from a loss is different than moving forward with your loss. Hmm. And, um, so replacing think, our either ors with both ands, maybe exactly. I, I really think, yeah, because the either or is just a false choice. Mm -hmm. Um, and then it keeps you thinking, well, if I'm still missing, if I'm still grieving this loss, then I guess I'm not moving forward or I guess I'll never be ready to date again. Or I guess, you know, it can lead to these kind of all or nothing statements that, you know, grief is, is, <laughs> eternally more nuanced than that and so yeah and uh, I, I like the way you said that actually replacing either or with both an and and kind of living with those dual realities thank you so much for spending the time to share some of this yeah. and some of your work it's it's amazing how much what you're talking about in your particular realm uh, completely parallels a lot of what we talk about in this one and uh, yeah. and just the overarching aspects of, of grief and loss and, and moving on I just think there's there's a lot of powerful stuff there so thanks for sharing some of your experience and your expertise absolutely I appreciate you guys working so hard and doing such a uh, compelling and polished um, podcast I listen to you guys do a, a real bang up job so that's a, a legitimate service to a lot of people out there well thanks so much that's 
that's awesome to hear yeah. i appreciate it yeah all right kevin well it's good to connect all right you have a great day thank you all right thanks bye bye This conversation was a good reminder of a lot of the ground we've covered and a lot of the process that we've seen play out in real time, whether in our own lives or here on the podcast. It's easy to view growth as a separate thing from our grief. Impatiently, we might perceive the process of grief as something we need to get through so that we can move on to growth. But in reality, growth is just happening alongside grief as we adapt. And there's some comfort to be found there. People a bit further down the line will tell you how much they learned in grief. And if you've had a harder season where grief has seemed all-encompassing, it's good to know that you aren't in stasis. You are still in process and progress. You are still moving forward. And as with so many other things, viewing deconstruction and reconstruction as some sort of binary isn't ultimately helpful. So, as you know, music has always been central to the podcast, and we've been scoring Season 3 with our producer Derek's new album, Targets, just as we scored Season 1 with his previous release. But as the track list of this new album ran its course, it just seemed clear that the season had more that it wanted to do, and so that meant scheduling some more calls and having some more conversations. So look forward to the coming weeks and this final run of Season 3 episodes, all of which will be based around the structure of music itself. Season 3 has a few more targets left to hit. Check us out on Patreon slash The Airing of Grief. Check out our producers' websites, jamieleefinch.com and derekweb.com. And you can find Dr. Justin Yop online. His book, The Group, Seven Widowed Fathers Reimagine Life, is available along with other resources at widowedparent.org. Proceeds from the book go towards the grief program that they're running. And that's all for now. So we will see you again next week after church for the airing of grief. Grief.